Well, last week, if you were present with us, you would know that we spent our time going through verses 11 to 18. And there we were, really trying to go through this injunction that John leaves with us. He begins with the simple assertion taught from the mouth of Jesus, to love one another. But then he colors the very impression we have of this notion called love by using two examples. One, a negative example, and the other one, a positive example. The negative example is the example of Cain, who killed his brother, who murdered his brother, out of mere jealousy. And the idea we're supposed to get from that isn't that, obviously, we're supposed to be following Cain. No, it's a negative example. What John is placing before us is that we ought not to be like Cain. He's telling us, in fact, that to be like Cain is to not love your brothers, to be a hater of the brothers, to be like a murderer, and to act in such a way as reprehensible. It's so horrid that it should be unsettling for any of this to be found within our own lives. But he juxtaposes this man Cain with the man Jesus. Jesus exemplifies to the highest degree what love for the brethren should look like. And he contrasts it with Cain. By looking and considering the works of Christ and the great lengths this great God and Cain has gone through to draw near to undeserving sinners, to draw near to people who have done no good in their life, who are not deserving of any of God's blessing. He uses the example of Jesus to show us what loving of unworthy people looks like. It looks like giving up your life so that they may live. It does not look like what Cain did, who murdered his brother. It looks like what Jesus did, who gave up his own life so others could live. He asks, as it were, the question in this way, how can you not love your brother and be like Cain? How can you go in the way of Cain? But then he goes on further to stir us to love by asking, how can we not love the brethren having received the love of Jesus? Or stated more positively, because you have received the love of Jesus, you should love the brethren. His concluding remarks is that without the display of love in practical means, such as giving up your very substance, you have not known the love of God, and you've deceived yourself if you think you're a Christian. That's what we looked at last week. And that's just a summary. But I did it in the manner I did because the text today is not a departure from this theme of love which runs throughout these verses. Far from considering it a digression, John actually develops what he is going to tell us today by using the text that we just read, verses 11 to 18. He develops it to tell us of the topic of assurance. It's a topic that we've been circling around but I've never spoken explicitly to within the epistle. But now we'll address it directly. And the first thing we'll look at is the reality of Christian assurance. As we look at verse 19, you would notice that the apostle draws our mind immediately back to the preceding text. He says, by this we shall know that we are of the truth. He exclaims almost triumphantly that we are of the truth because of what he said in the preceding verses. 
as I said, the preceding verses really outline why we should be convinced that we're Christians. We should be convinced that we're Christians because we love the brothers. So that's what he's laying the foundation for the future development in the text. The inescapable reality John reminds us of is that only those who display the spirit-wrought work of keeping God's command to love one another may know that they are of the truth. When John says that we are of the truth, he may be taking a jab at the cessationists. Secessionists, not cessationists. Secessionists. Two different things. Those who have seceded from the community of believers, not who have believed that the gifts have ceased. <laughs> Two different things. These people thought that they had the true knowledge. They thought that because of some work that was done in their lives, some manifestation in the spirit that they experienced, that they had the true knowledge, that they were in the truth. So John may be taking a jab at them. But it's more probable that John is providing us with a continuation of the thought developed in verse 18. He says in verse 18 of chapter 3, Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Those who love in deed and in truth are of the truth. In other words, they are of God. Just as the cause is known from the effect, so is the ongoing love of God's people a manifestation that we belong to the truth and invariably belong to God. So that's part of what we should glean from this text, just simply that there's such a thing called assurance. There's such a thing as knowing that you are saved. The very grammar employed in the, the passage is dripping with certainty. He says, you shall know. He doesn't say that perhaps you will know or it's possible to know or anything like that. But he says, you shall know if your life is characterized by love of the brethren that you are in the truth. Essentially though, friends, John answers that profoundly important question. It's a question that every Christian has had to grapple with and even may continue to grapple with. That question we should all know is, am I a Christian? Am I saved? How can I be sure in light of the rampant apostasy going on within the gospel-believing churches? Not just in churches where the teaching is dubious, but in solid Bible-believing churches. People we've grown up with over the years who were trailblazing, as it were, preaching the gospel, have just departed. People we have been taught profound truths in the religion called Christianity have left the faith. We may know of pastors, one recently, who was marching in an LGBT parade. We may know of other pastors who have made ruin of their confession, who have been found philandering for many of their days. How can we know when there are people who have modeled Christianity for years more closely than you and me, and yet seem to have given up Christ for the world? How can we know? If you've been a Christian for more than two minutes, thoughts like this may have entered your mind. But that's just considering external examples. 
Similar thoughts may enter our mind when waves of doubt repeatedly overshadow the gentle assurance we're given in the gospel. This passage gets uncomfortably personal because the writer assumes that there are instances, maybe seasons, in which we may falter in our reception and acknowledgement of this reality of assurance. It shouldn't surprise you that the heart is prone to wonder. As sometimes we may ask ourselves whether we are indeed within the faith, whether we belong to the truth. Circumstances within the gospel-believing church may only serve to accentuate what is really going on within our hearts. We're really questioning already, and we're seeing this guy drop off and this guy drop off, and now he's coming out and he's saying that he supports homosexuality, and this is happening. And all along, in, our, in the back of our minds, we're saying, how do I know? How can I tell that I am a Christian? And we see that John accounts for this tension within the Christian life. He says that we may be reassured in our hearts before God. The language here presumes that there's a present need to assure our hearts. If you have a King James or NASB Bible, you may notice that the word is assure and not reassure. But a Greek term here has the meaning of persuade or convince. What John is saying is that our hearts need to be convinced. They need to be persuaded just as a quick aside I spent an inordinately long amount of time trying to figure out what the word heart means in this passage only to find out later on that you know the confession has already thought about it and said it plainly already but just as a quick aside um, when we see the word heart here in this portion of text, um, most people within the Reformed community interpret it as conscience. So in this portion of text, is the faculty of mind which informs us of right and wrong and convicts us when we're guilty of sin. Others interpret it to mean the center of our being, our true self, our inner self, that which is most truly and fundamentally us. Um, there's evidence to compel us either way internally within John and externally using other texts. But whether we take the text to mean that our consciences are reassured or our deepest inward being is reassured, that doesn't lead to a great change in the meaning of the text. The point really is that within ourselves, we need to wrestle with our heart. We need to set it at ease. We need to set it at rest. And so to provide a reason for this, we are called to confront our hearts. We're not called to sit idly by and simply let the shouts of uncertainty outweigh our confidence. In verse 20 it says, Whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Perhaps counterintuitively, John recommends that we run to God and not away from God to reassure our conscience. The first thing we may think about naturally when our conscience is troubled is the opposite. When we're indicted and we think about some grave sin we've committed and we just want to run away from God. We may be inclined to move away from God instead of taking steps towards Him. But within this verse, we are encouraged to show up for this summons to the tribunal of God. Pastor Conrad Mbwewe, I think, provides a very helpful illustration that draws out this point. 
when he was preaching on this passage, he says, Within the judicial system, there are several courts. There's the local court, the high court, and finally, the supreme court. Of course, we know that the lower courts of our conscience can condemn you, but there is a higher court which you can appeal to. The sense of his message is that it is the verdict of God that ultimately counts. Our nagging consciences may call our profession of faith into question for several reasons, but ultimately we may rely on the testimony of God through his word. Our hearts may speak and say, well, you cannot be a Christian since you feel this way or since you've done that. But the Lord says that we can know we are of the truth if we love the brethren. And it suggests in the verses just above, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. This is the means we use to argue with our hearts. The means we use is looking at what God says of our conversion. Not looking at what I have to say. Not looking at what I have done today. But over the span of my life, is this a true reality for me? Have I been a hater of the brethren? Have I been somebody who is constantly neglecting them? Constantly indifferent towards them? I couldn't care less if I hang out with them or not. If I invest in their lives or not. If their life is flourishing or not. Or have I been carefully inquiring? Have I been considering what can I do to better love and appreciate this brother or sister? Brethren, true Christianity does not attempt to conceal the ills that are present within our heart. When the strobing lights of God's law expose what we are, we should not seek to retreat further into the darkness. Not at all. Though conscience may not acquit us of wrongdoing, our response should not be to avoid the higher scrutiny of God our Father. He already knows everything about us and receives us gladly as children. He is a loving restorer of the penitent, not just a final arbiter when our conscience condemns us, but the greatness of God is displayed over and above us because of his great kindness towards us. The great God and King of the universe does not ignore the sin of even his own people. And yet his graciousness towards them is astounding. Treating them not in accordance with the way that they act, even the way that they act towards him. Consider an example of the appeal to the greatness of God in, circum in the circumstance of Peter. Imagine the great stabbing and throbbing in the heart of Peter when after the Lord has resurrected, he asked him not once but three times, Peter, do you love me? After he had betrayed the Lord Jesus, after he had denied him thrice, not once, not twice, but three times, Jesus asked him, Peter, do you love me? And what does Peter finally do? He appeals to the one who knows everything. He says, Lord, you know everything, and you know that I love you. There's a sense in which we rest the verdict concerning ourselves with God ultimately. We're like Paul, we say, well, it doesn't matter even what I think of myself. It is the opinion of God that matters. The sensitive in conscience will only have their concerns allayed when instead of looking at themselves, they look upward to God. And that brings us to our second point. Having compelled us to come before God when our heart 
condemns us, we are then shown the benefits of having this assurance or confidence before God. He says in verses 22 and sorry verses 21 and 22 that when we come before God with clear consciences or with a heart that is free from the burden of guilt we have confidence before God or in the presence of God the confidence spoken of here actually carries with it a sense of citizenship and the rights afforded to them that's according to a prominent pastor Joel Beakey We are here pictured as sons and daughters who approach God by right, not as beggars pleading with a frowning king. The image that is meant to be conveyed is one of a son who is able to enter the throne room of God whenever he chooses. And this isn't presumption or arrogance. Too many view statements such as, I am a Christian or I know I am a Christian or going to heaven as contradictory at best and prideful at worst. How can you possibly know? It's only those who endure to the end who are saved. So how can you possibly know? You have to end up there to know. You have to get to the end. You're still here, so it can't be the end. How can you possibly know? Or how can you say that you could be so presumptuous about the Lord's grace? But responses such as these miss the very essence of the confidence we have. Our ultimate assurance is not founded upon some long list of Christian virtue that I have maintained over the past year. It isn't grounded in the strength of my conviction that I am a Christian. Not at all. Our boast begins and ends with the Lord. We stand before Him in confidence because, in, because we believe in the righteousness and kindness of another, namely His Son, Jesus Christ. I think a quote by Calvin is very instructive in this regard. And let me share it with you. He says, We must ever remember that we have not from love the knowledge the apostle mentions, meaning the confidence, as though we were to seek from it the certainty of salvation. Love is accessory or an inferior aid, a prop to our faith, not a foundation on which it rests. So you see then the function of our works to confirm our faith merely aids our confidence. It isn't the basis for it. When the passage grounds our confidence in this commandment to believe in the name of the Son Jesus Christ and love one another, what's at the bottom isn't even our faith because that may fail and waver. What's at the bottom, what holds you tightly to the Father's accords that drew us sweetly at Calvary? It's the man, Jesus Christ, who is mediator on behalf of sinners. That's what's at the bottom or our foundation of our relationship with God. To think otherwise is actually presumptuous and arrogant. If you think about it, to presume that it is because you're such a good person or because you've made such great strides in your sanctification and therefore... You should have confidence before God. Therefore, that's what lies at the bottom of your confidence before God. That's presumption and arrogance. And one that it will be eventually shown to be vaporous. Because ultimately, the one who gives us confidence is the man, Jesus Christ. So the basis of our salvation is not within ourselves. Not at all. It could never be. We have nothing to offer to procure righteousness. Nor do we have the power to remove sin's curse and the punishment that 
goes along with it. The role of works of righteousness, as Calvin implies, is a gracious act of God, whereby he aids in the supply of outward character traits, which confirm that we are in the truth. Primarily for the glory of his name, but also so that we can stand before his presence unashamed. But before we move on to the next point, one of the other benefits of this assurance or confidence we have before God, the scripture tells us, is that if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God and whatever we ask or receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. Whatever we ask, we receive from him. There it is. Name it and claim it right there. Whatever we ask, we receive from him. Well, maybe not. Obviously, these verses are couched within the larger context of the entire Bible. But even within John, 1 John chapter 5 tells us that we have to ask according to his will in order for, us, for him to hear us. So requests have to be tempered by what the scripture prescribes. But more than that, John is continuing this thought of the boldness that we have because of our citizenship. He's giving us a beautiful picture of what it means to have the right to speak in the presence of God and the boldness we have to make requests. God isn't a tight-fisted father, in other words, who looks upon his children with a scowling face when we come before him. Assurance of our standing before God provides us with confidence that the Lord looks upon us as sons and daughters. Citizens of heaven who have the right to ask of him for our daily needs and for the fulfillment of his word. Your roof, dear brother and sister, when you go down on your knees or on your face or however you pray, is not merely a sounding board. It's not merely the place where the sound is trapped and reverberates for your own ears to hear. Your words said... In the presence of God are heard because of this confidence that you have in Christ. But what then of the function of our works? How do we escape the reality that John is claiming? He says plainly, it is because we keep his commandments and please him that our prayers are heard. How do we escape the fact that John is tying obeying God's commands with receiving answers to our prayers how do we avoid that again i think calvin might be instructive here he says and i quote it's a general truth taught in scripture that the ungodly are not heard by god <clears throat> on the contrary their prayers are an abomination to him by this though we shouldn't infer again that the commandments or clear conscience are the currency with which we barter in the marketplace of God's blessing. We can't bring God into our debt as though he owes us anything. Rather, our approach to God as children who know that the Lord is willing to come to our aid. He sees the lowliness of our estate and is full of mercy and kindness. His tenderness is shown in his attentiveness to our very requests. So again, we have confidence that we, we have confidence when we are keeping the commands which confirm we are in the faith. What John is arguing and wrestling with us about is you can only have confidence about prayer if you're in the faith. You can only have confidence that you're in the faith if you keep the commands of God. 
That's the sense, that's the flow of John's logic. Finally though, brothers, we're drawn to consider God's provision for granting us assurance. And John says that this happens through no other than the agency of the Holy Spirit. How do we know we abide in God? He says in verse 24, Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us, by the Spirit whom he has given. How do we know we abide in God? There are external means by which we are assured. But there is also a subjective, inward assurance that the Holy Spirit imparts to us. Within reform circles, when you make mention of internal work of the Spirit, people start to become uneasy. Anything besides the Spirit's association with regeneration or the fruit that He produces is looked on with a sense of timidity. But the Apostle is reminding us that it is the Spirit that affords us great comfort that we are in Christ or in God. But how then does he accomplish this? Several explanations are advanced within reform circles. One is that we know we abide in the truth because the Spirit produces the effects that confirm we are in the truth. So the Spirit so molds and fashions our life to conform to what God prescribes in the Scripture that we know that we are in the truth. We are conformed to love the brothers and so we know that we are in the truth. Alternatively, many commentators actually suggest that this is a reference to the inward assurance we receive. This would be in line with Romans 8, 15 and 16, which says that the Spirit himself bears witness that we are children of God. And lastly, other commentators suggest that what John is doing is transitioning from the topic of confidence in God to testing the testimony of the many spirits in this world which is the theme that is further unfolded in chapter 4. It seems as though it's difficult to rule out any one of these because they're technically all true. But I think the latter may best fit the context. We know that God lives in us because we have believed the testimony of the Spirit. God has testified to us concerning His Son Jesus through the witness of the Spirit of God. And upon becoming a believer... The Spirit does not cease to testify to us concerning our standing before God because of the works of His Son. Experientially, we know that this Son has been given up for us, for our sakes. He has bled and died. For our sakes, the wrath of God fell upon Him. That's the work of the Spirit, particularly unfolded throughout the Johannine literature. It was the Spirit that led us to Christ to live in him but it's also the spirit that leads us to this testimony of christ this testimony concerning who christ is the son of god the messiah the one who is lord of lords and king of kings it's the spirit that inwardly testifies to us of this reality that's the spirit who is given to us who abides in us this is why we have confidence because we are led to believe in the bedrock of our assurance. Assurance ultimately, ultimately is found in Christ and Christ alone. We may have inferior aids, as Calvin calls them, 
external witnesses. We may even have brothers and sisters who are within the church who testify to, yes, God has done a work in your life. Yes, you're not the same anymore. Yes, I can see God's marks within you. But ultimately, when we get to the bottom, when we see what is holding us, tethering us to the love of God, it is not anything that we do, not anything that we produce, but it is God's salvific work. It is God's powerful work that is wrought through Christ. And this is what gives us confidence. This is what the Spirit testifies to. This is what we have to hold fast to as we go on throughout our days. This work of the Spirit to testify of who Jesus is.